Well, please take a seat there and let's pray as we come now to these verses. Father, we thank you for our marvelous and wonderful Savior. Uh, we thank you for his love for us. And in particular, we'll look at this evening as Jesus prayed to you in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Father, we pray that as we consider these short verses, that you would help us to see something more of our wonderful Saviour, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Well, once again, we are here in Luke's Gospel. If I can invite you, please, to have your Bible open there at Luke chapter 22, and we're in verses 39 to 46. That would be great. Thank you. And in our last few studies in Luke's Gospel, we have been listening in to what Luke has recorded for us of the words of Jesus in the upper room on that night on which Jesus is, of course, about to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot and then handed over to the Jewish authorities. And verse 39 acts as a, a transitional verse, really. Jesus and his disciples now leave the upper room and they head over to the Mount of Olives. And in particular, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, at the end of chapter 21, you may remember that Luke has already told us that this is what Jesus and his disciples did each evening that week. Uh, chapter 21, verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. Remember the feast of Passover is at hand. Uh, Jerusalem would have been filled to overflowing. And like many other people would have done, Jesus and his disciples therefore needed to find lodgings outside of the city itself. And so on this evening as well, as had been his custom that week, Luke tells us, Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives to stay there. And as we read that, we should notice in passing that even though Jesus knows that there is a plot against him, even though he knows that Judas is in league with the Jewish authorities to have Jesus arrested and put on trial and then put to death, Jesus does not run away from that, does he? He doesn't alter his plans in any way. He doesn't deviate from his normal routines that week. No, each day he goes to the temple to teach there, and each evening he goes to the Mount of Olives. He doesn't go and hide anywhere. He keeps acting just as he normally had been doing, and he goes again to this place where he knows he can easily be found. And the reason is, of course, that he's going to go to the cross willingly. He's going to go as a voluntary sacrifice. As John puts it in John chapter 10, no one, or as Jesus puts it in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
And that particular evening, as I'm sure he did each evening, Jesus set aside some time to pray to his heavenly Father. And as we look at these verses, I'd like us to notice three things from this short passage. Each thing we'll look at this evening revolves around the matter of prayer in one way or another. And so first of all, notice this, that prayer is vital for withstanding temptation. Prayer is vital for withstanding temptation. And in this section, Luke doesn't go into as much detail as the other gospel writers do. From the other gospel accounts, we know that uh, Jesus left eight of the disciples at the gate of the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he took with him the so-called inner circle of disciples, Peter and James and John, and they went with him further into the midst of the grove. And then Luke tells us, when Jesus came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And here we see something of the great compassion of Jesus for his disciples, don't we? Remember, Jesus knows full well that within the next 24 hours, he is going to go through this awful ordeal of crucifixion. Simultaneously, as he was crucified, he would suffer the the full force of the wrath of God against his people's sin. And Jesus here is facing up to the reality of that unimaginably awful experience. And yet his concern at this particular moment, you see, is for the well-being of his disciples. And he knows that in the midst of all that would happen to him, the disciples too would face a, a great temptation. And the temptation would be for them to disown Christ. Why stay faithful to Jesus when he's just been crucified and the authorities are now going to turn their heat on his followers? Indeed, of course, in the upper room, Jesus had spoken of how Satan wanted to sift Peter like wheat. Satan wants the disciples to defect from Jesus. And with the prospect of great persecution heading their way shortly, That would be a very real temptation for these disciples. And what must they do then to withstand this temptation? Well, Jesus says, doesn't he? Simply pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. That is, that you you may not go along with it. That you may not succumb to it. Of course, we can do nothing about being tempted. Temptation is never far away from us in this life. Of course, Jesus himself was tempted in every way that we are tempted, although without sin. And so we cannot, as it were, hermetically seal ourselves off from every temptation. But we can do something about the temptation that comes our way. And Jesus says the best thing that we can do about it is to pray about it. Jesus had already said a similar thing in the Lord's Prayer, hadn't he? Earlier on in Luke's Gospel, as he taught his disciples how to pray, he said that when they prayed to their Heavenly Father, they were to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You see what Jesus is getting at here again, don't you? Prayer, he says to his disciples, is absolutely vital in withstanding temptation. It is a means of God's grace. 
by which we're strengthened in order to persevere in the faith, even when temptation is all around us. It was John Bunyan who very rightly said that either prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. And if these disciples needed to pray in order to withstand temptation, of course it stands to reason, doesn't it, that so do we. So do we. Ask yourself, is that something that you pray about regularly? Do you pray about the things that particularly tempt you, whatever those things may be? What is your besetting temptation? Is it lust or pride or anger or resentment or gossip or jealousy or or whatever else? Do you make those things a regular matter for prayer every day? And if we're honest, we know that very often we're like these disciples, aren't we, who on this particular occasion failed to pray like they ought to have done. Look again at verses 45 and 46. And when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Again, Luke's account of this story is somewhat abbreviated. The other gospel writers tell us it was actually three times that Jesus found them sleeping. And Luke tells us that they were sleeping for sorrow. He's telling us that all of these traumatic events going on around the disciples at this time seem to have just worn them down, exhausted them physically and mentally. And so time and again, they drift off to sleep when they ought to have been praying. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. And so Jesus, after he had prayed, woke them and said, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's the first thing we notice, isn't it, in this passage? Prayer is vital for withstanding temptation. Whatever temptation you might be facing, make sure you keep praying about it. And then secondly, this evening, notice this, that through prayer, Jesus humbled himself before his Father's will. Through prayer, Jesus humbled himself before his Father's will. And in verse 41, Jesus then leaves Peter and James and John with their instructions to pray against temptation. And then he went a little further into the garden himself, just a a few yards more, a stone's throw away, no more. And there he practiced what he had just preached. That is, he devoted himself to this matter of prayer. And in so doing, he, he grappled perhaps like never before, with the awful reality that lay before him as the, the cross drew ever closer. William Hendrickson writes these words. He says, though it will never be possible for our minds to penetrate into the mystery of the horror Jesus experienced in Gethsemane, we cannot be far amiss if we state that it probably included at least this, that he was given a preview of the agonies of the fast-approaching crucifixion. He had a foretaste of what it meant to be forsaken by his heavenly Father. And is it not reasonable to assume that during these dreadful periods of anguish, Satan and his demons assaulted him with the intention of causing him to turn aside from the path of obedience to God? And it is all of this 
impending suffering in all of its horror that Jesus sums up with that little phrase in the, the middle of his prayer in verse 42. I wonder if you notice it. He describes all of this suffering, you see, as this cup, this cup. And he's using Old Testament imagery here. Often in the Old Testament, the, the cup is the cup of God's wrath. The cup that those who are guilty of sin must drink as their punishment from God. So to give just one example of that, in Psalm 75 we read, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And you see, Jesus knows as he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane that this terrifying cup, this cup of God's righteous holy wrath against his people's sin has been placed into his hand for him to drink it in their place. And he has done, of course, nothing at all to deserve it. He has lived a life of perfect obedience, perfect righteousness before his father. And yet it is God's will that sinless Jesus will drink this cup of God's wrath right down to the dregs when he dies on the cross. He will take all of God's punishment against his people's sin upon himself, all of the wrath, all of the judgment, in order to free his people from it. He will drink the cup of God's wrath so that his people will never need to. And as Jesus contemplates what this will mean for him, it shakes him to his very core, doesn't it? Look at verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, commentators differ on how we should read that verse. Some commentators say that this is a simile. It's describing the way in which literal sweat poured from Jesus as readily as if he were bleeding from a wound. And others say, of course, that Luke, who you remember is a physician, he would have been interested in these particular things, is telling us that Jesus is going through an awful experience that today is known as hematidrosis, whereby a person who is going through extreme distress and extreme fear can sweat blood literally. And whether the, the second half of verse 44 is literal or if it's intended as a simile, Either way, the point remains that Luke is telling us that Jesus went through a horrific ordeal in the Garden of Gethsemane. Physical agony, coupled with mental and emotional and spiritual distress as he contemplated the horror of the cross and what it would mean to face being forsaken by God. By the way, it is beyond comprehension isn't it, that so many people live their lives facing that very same prospect of undergoing the judgment of God. And whilst Jesus sweat drops of blood as he thought of that, other people live life and never bat an eyelid about it. And what should amaze us most of all here is that as Jesus grapples with these very realities, that through prayer he humbles himself 
before his father's will. That is the essence of his prayer in verses 41 and 42, isn't it? Firstly, Jesus knelt as he prayed. Now, we're used, aren't we, to associating kneeling with praying. We're familiar with that as a concept. In those days, however, that would have been very unusual. It was customary for the Jews to stand in order to pray. And yet here, Jesus chose to kneel. And he did so in recognition of the fact that here he was self-consciously humbling himself before his father's will. It's an act of humility. And then having knelt, Jesus then prayed as follows. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in order for us to understand these words properly, we need to remember that Jesus is one person and he has two natures. He has a divine nature and he has a human nature. And because of that, Jesus is absolutely unique in that he also has two wills. So as the eternal son of God, he possesses the divine will, just as the Father and the Holy Spirit do. There is no difference between the will of the Father and the will of the Son and the will of the Holy Spirit. It is one and the same will, the divine will. And as well as that, Jesus also has a human will as part of his human nature, just as we do. And in these words, Jesus is talking about his human will. At every moment, every moment, his human will submitted to his heavenly Father's will for him. That is, he lived a life of perfect obedience before his Father every day. But if I can put it in these terms, it is here in the Garden of Gethsemane where the rubber really hit the road for the human will of Jesus Christ. And with the cross only a few hours away, would Jesus continue to humble himself in obedience before his Father's will? And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus grappling with that issue, don't we? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. And in his human mind and will, Jesus is praying, is there any way, Father, for this work of salvation to be accomplished aside from me going to the cross? Is there any other way? And then vitally, Jesus continues in prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And with those words, Jesus commits himself afresh to his Father's will. Through prayer, Jesus humbled himself before his Father's will. And he would go through with the cross because he knew that it was the will and the plan of God from all eternity that God the Son would become flesh and then live a life of perfect obedience in order to save fallen, sinful men and women like us. And in that obedience, he would on the one hand be actively obedient. That is, he would be obedient in everything that he did, all that the law required. And as well as that, he would be passively obedient. That is, he would be obedient in everything that was done to him. Uh, even at Calvary, taking upon himself the curse of the law 
in his people's place. The Apostle Paul writes, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being, fu- and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we can scarcely take it in, can we? Such is the enormity of all that this means for Jesus. And as well as that, all that it means for us in our union with him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, through prayer, Jesus humbled himself before his Father's will. His Father's will that he would drink the cup of God's wrath in his people's place. And it almost seems trite to say so, but but as well as that, we also see in this prayer of Jesus something of a lesson or or a principle for our own prayer lives, don't we? Jesus closes this prayer with those words, not my will, but yours be done. And it is sometimes the case that wrongly we think that when we pray, what we're trying to do in prayer is to try and bend God's will to suit ours. And you see, Jesus is showing us here by the example of his own prayer life that that is completely the wrong way around, isn't it? Rather, through prayer, we seek to bring our will into humble submission before the will of God, just as Jesus does here. Again, there is an echo of this in the Lord's Prayer, isn't there? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So through prayer, Jesus humbles himself before his Father's will. And then there is one final thing uh, to say from these verses, and that is found right in the middle of the passage, where very, very simply we see that the Father answers prayer. The Father answers prayer. We've noticed already there in verse 42 that the human mind and will of Jesus had grappled with this matter. Was there any way that salvation could be accomplished aside from Jesus going to the cross? Would the Father be willing somehow for this cup of wrath to be removed from Jesus' hand? Was there any other way around it? And we know that the answer to that question is in a word, no. There is no other way for people to be saved aside from the cross of Jesus. This prayer of Jesus answers that question for us once and for all, doesn't it? There is no salvation for anyone anywhere apart from the cross of Christ. As the writer to the Hebrews puts it, without the shedding of blood, and specifically without the shedding of the blood of the sinless God-man Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sins. And yet in his mercy towards Jesus, the Father answers this prayer in another way, doesn't he? And we read there in verse 43 that there appeared to him, that is, there appeared to Jesus, an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And just as angels had been sent to Jesus whilst he was in the wilderness, and they ministered to him there, A similar thing happens here as well. An angel is sent to minister to Jesus by strengthening him in this time of greatest need. And so we see simply, don't we, that the Father answers prayer. And in this instance, he answers it in this way. He doesn't 
remove the suffering from Jesus because it is the will of God for Jesus to go to the cross. And yet in his mercy and faithfulness towards his son, the father sends help to strengthen Jesus through that suffering. He equips him even for the awful trials that lie ahead before those sufferings are finally completed and Jesus is at last welcomed to glory. And there is an obvious application of this for our own prayer life, isn't there? And the application is this. It may be the case that you yourself are facing some kind of suffering or difficulty in life at the moment and you have cried out to your heavenly father to take this away from you. Let it pass by. And you've asked your father, is there not another way for your will to play out in my life and for your purposes for me to be accomplished aside from me suffering in this way? And in his mercy, it may be the case that the father answers that prayer of yours with a yes and that he takes that suffering away from you. But that may not be the case. And he may answer the prayer in this way, that he doesn't remove that suffering from you because in the mystery of his providence, that suffering is necessary for what he's doing in your life and his purpose is to refine you and to sanctify you and to bring glory to himself through you. And yet be assured of this, that... The Father never just leaves you in the lurch in your suffering. And in his grace and mercy and faithfulness towards you, he sends whatever help is needed to strengthen you through that suffering. And he equips you even for that trial, that cross that you're carrying before those sufferings have accomplished their God-given purpose. And then eventually you are welcomed into glory with Christ. It's in this way that the Father answers prayer. Let's pray to him now. Our Heavenly Father, we give to you our praise and our thanksgiving for our Lord Jesus and all that he has done for us in his perfect life and in his atoning death. We thank you for the obedience of Jesus, that he was obedient in everything that he did and he was obedient in everything that was done to him. He fulfilled all of the law's precepts and he suffered all of the law's penalty and all of that he did in our place in order to save us. And so we thank you that he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And Father, we pray for ourselves because we know that we are people who are so vulnerable in the face of temptation. And we ask that you'd help us to be prayerful every day that we ourselves may not enter into temptation. Deliver us from evil, we pray. And we ask that even in the midst of suffering, as and when that comes our way, that we would trust in your good and wise purposes, even when we don't understand them. And that even as we go through seasons of suffering, that in your mercy you would strengthen us for every trial, because we ask it all 
in our Saviour's precious name. Amen.